you're listening to The Creation Academy, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word and biblical creation science. I'm your host, Steve Schramm, and on this week's lesson, we're asking the question, who was Adam and who are we? Talking about Adam and the image of God. This week in the sixth lesson of our series on the biblical origin of humanity. We want to know the history of humanity. We want to know where we came from. Were Adam and Eve really the first two human beings? We've been looking at that for the past six weeks and answering that question from a variety of different viewpoints. We've looked at the Old Testament, the New Testament. We've looked at early church history. Uh, We have looked at some general arguments, um, biblically speaking. We've looked at some cultural things. And today, we're going to center in on the issue of the image of God. Who really was Adam? And once we find out who Adam was, well, then we can ask the question, who are we? Are we anything special? Are we simply just a higher evolved form of animal? What are we? Who are we? Do all lives really matter? Is there a such thing as human rights? You know, we could go on and on all day questioning these things. And at the end of the day, we know the answer to the question. We know the answer is yes, because that's how everybody acts. And that's how everybody lives, except for those who are consistent and who understand the serious cultural ramifications of believing in a theory such as Darwinian evolution. And we know how detrimental that is. We have history, and it's replete with examples where we just have problems and problems of racial um, segregation. Of course, we have issues like what happened in Nazi Germany. And actually, we're going to talk about all of that stuff in a later episode in this series. So I don't want to move too far Uh, in that direction, so we don't get off course. But who are we? Are we made in the image of God? And furthermore, what does that mean? What um, What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Do we look like God? Do we act like God? Do we have the characteristics and the attributes of God? We're gonna try to explore and answer all of those questions Um, on this week's lesson of the show. Now, again, we are in uh, the book, Searching for Adam, Genesis, and the Truth About Man's Origin. We've been going through this book. I've been having a good time going through this book. Now, if you don't enjoy it, please tell me so I know. We can can change course. We can do something a little different. Um, And if you do like it, well, then please do let me know. Um, Leave a comment on my website, or you can, of course, rate um, and review the podcast in the iTunes directory. I invite you to do that um, just because it helps keep me on course. It helps me to know if I'm delivering the kind of content that you guys want to see from a creation science podcast every week. And so if I'm not delivering what you want, then um, then I'm less effective. So that's what I would like to uh, do. Now, I want to say that first and foremost, you know, my, my primary objective here is if you're, um, if you're new to this, you've maybe never been exposed to these kind of arguments before and this kind of thinking, then I just want to welcome you aboard. You know, it's, it's very, very likely that some of you are listening to this podcast for the first time. Uh, if so, I invite you to go back to the first few episodes to kind of get an idea and kind of a feel for 
what we do on here. And right now, again, we're, we're going through a book. Every now and then we do a book series on here. And uh, and this is actually the first whole book series that we've done. And we're going to continue to do these um, with different kinds of books and things like that. Every now and then we might go through a book that has a, a, a dissenting opinion or an opinion that we uh, do not agree with. And we might go through and kind of try to give some refutations of those. But in this case, we're just using this as a textbook, and we're going to go through it and try to see if we can discern some truth about the biblical origin of humanity. And I think so far we've done that. We've seen some some pretty great things so far, and I'm excited to continue in the study. So this week, uh, the lesson is titled, Who Was Adam and Who Are We? Who Was Adam and Who Are We? And the chapter in the book is titled, Adam... In the image of God, Adam and the image of God. And this chapter was written by a man named David Cassis, David Cassis. And in um, 2002, he was elected actually as the first Latino Republican to the Georgia House of Representatives. And he's now serving his seventh term there. And he serves as the Berea School of Ministries second president and also teaches Old Testament at Luther Rice College and Seminary. He has an MDiv from Luther Rice, and he will soon finish his PhD in Old Testament at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary under Dr. Russell Fuller. So this is a man who is doing some good work for the kingdom. He's doing a lot of studying, hard studying, uh, going after his PhD um, for the kingdom. And we're going to see what he has to say about Adam and the image of God. And I just want to compliment his research here in this particular chapter. Um, the amount of information was just staggering. I mean, it was, a, it was a very long chapter, outlined well, and the information was dealt with well. Uh, as I say always, and this is true, uh, there's just no way. I just could not fit it all on here. Um, my, my podcast uh, notes for this lesson uh, are quite intimidating looking. And, you know, the reason for that is because I want to be thorough. I want to give as much information from the book as I possibly can, um, but realizing that there's no way I can fit it all. So you should go get the book, $5.99 on Kindle, and the link will be there in the show notes to go purchase it. I encourage you to do that. Go back to the first episode in this series and just listen through. And we walk you through it, and I think you're going to have a very, very... A good time, and it's going to be very helpful for you as you are learning. All right, so uh, again, it was written by David Cassis, this chapter, and uh, the introduction to this chapter kind of lays out uh, the premise and kind of gives us an idea as to what direction that we are we are going. And really, here's where it starts. Man is simply a beast, a product of billions of years of mindless undirected evolutionism. This is the consensus, really, among modern scientists. We're just a beast. We, uh, you know, much of our, even our observational science is unfortunately today affected by what humanity believes about the past. And from time to time, uh, this proves to be quite detrimental uh, because we are not actually looking at our true history if we're constantly thinking in these um, evolutionary terms. So that's the that's the problem here. We're not actually getting an accurate view 
of reality. The author writes this, In the end, humanity lives and dies like the beast. Thus, concentration camps, gulags, killing fields, and abortion clinics are all monuments to secularism and atheism. Man, what a terrible picture of reality. And truly, that's the reality we live in. Man, we live in the world where all of these things are the norm. And even those who oppose them are simply living in contrast to their own worldview. Those who do not oppose them are the only ones who are really living consistently. So in a world where everybody is logically consistent, it just so happens to be a world where killing fields, abortion clinics, and concentration camps really should be the norm. But see, God's Word stands in clear contrast to this idea. And when we talk about things like human rights and values and ideas, really, these are biblical principles. It's a biblical principle to view humanity on a higher plane than the animals, which is where those who live inconsistently with their worldview place us. All right. So, um, for example, Psalm 8 5 says, For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and has crowned him with glory and honor, reflecting, of course, on the state of man. Uh, mankind is unique. We have unique abilities. Unique abilities. Genesis eleven six says, uh, And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. We have unique abilities. We have also a unique position. Psalm 8, 6, of course, says, Thou hast made him to uh, have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. We also have a unique composition, right? We're made of body, soul, and spirit. We've got a physical and a spiritual element. Check this uh, out in Genesis 2, 7. says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. A man became a living soul. Then spiritually, Ecclesiastes 12.7, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. So you see, we're unique. We have a spirit. We will return to God one day. If we're saved... And if we're Christians, otherwise, the Bible says that we're headed for a, a terrible reality, for a place called hell. And hell is a place where those who have rejected God willingly will simply be allowed to continue rejecting God for all of eternity. But there are consequences bound to that choice. And you can make whatever choice you please, but you cannot escape the consequences. And this is the reality that we live in. This is the true story of reality. Now the author writes this, The image of God consists of the spiritual part of humankind that reflects the character of God and is the only firm basis for advocating human dignity, the sanctity of life, and the gracious redemption of sinners. You know, that sanctity of life issue is very important. I wrote about this, and I will put a link in the show notes, 
in an article called Do All Lives Really Matter? Only if Christianity is true. And as you read through that article, you'll find kind of my argumentation is just to see how sad and how inconsistent most people live. You know, I know biology professors, and they have kids. And when they go home, they don't treat their kids as if they are just simply a a bag of biological material who just so happened in a random chance universe uh, to come out of nowhere. They treat their kids as if they're special, as if they're made for something greater, as if they have a purpose in life, as if there is meaning and direction to their life. But that's an inconsistent view if you don't believe that we're made in the image of God. We're special. Humanity is special. We're special in the sight and in the eyes of God. And that is the only reason why. When we do these humanitarian efforts, when we reach out to the poor, when we uh, go volunteer at the soup kitchen on Christmas, when we give to those who are less fortunate, when we start talking about racial rights and equality and why uh, we should treat one person the same as we should treat another person, these are biblical ideas. These are not ideas that arise out of an evolutionary worldview. And it's not even a survival benefit thing. You cannot claim survival benefit because there is just as much, if not more, survival benefit to taking out your neighbor, all right? You can either take him out to lunch or you can just take him out. And sometimes, from a survival perspective, it might be more beneficial just to take him out. So that doesn't work, all right? That's the difference. That's the difference. Now, the preposition in the phrase, according to his likeness, of course, we're reading the Bible, we understand that we are made according to his likeness, all right? It means the like of, like or as. So God created Adam in his image as the like of his likeness. So simply put, God's image reflects similarities between God and Adam, all right? Now, the obvious question asked next is what similarities, right? How does Adam resemble God? Well, Adam resembled God in having a free, rational, personal spirit, including a conscience with God's written law upon his heart. And you can see Romans 2, 14 through 16 for that. Therefore, he could rule over nature in a way similar to how God reigns. Not exactly, but similar. Of course, we see that in the dominion mandate, right? We see that God told us to have dominion and to subdue the earth. So the single most distinctive aspect of Adam's creation is that he was created in the image of God and his nature bears that image. There is, however, a definitive divide among theologians as to the meaning of the image of God. Whatever position taken as to the meaning of image, scholars agree that the essential meaning is plain. It is that man is in some way and in some degree like God. Now, what an amazing statement to think that we're like God. The one who we worship, right? And the one who we adore in our weekly gatherings and in our prayer lives and as we read his word, we are like him. He made us like him. Man, what what a different view of reality that is from the majority consensus. But do you see now 
if you look through history, all the good that has been done in the world, all the hospitals, all the humanitarian efforts, all the great universities that were started to learn, these were all started because people believed that we were made in the image of God. And just like the biblical pattern goes, and just like the biblical pattern shows, we have now educated ourselves to the point where we think we can do it without God. All Adam and Eve had to do to get to that point was to eat a fruit. That's how quickly it happened. Just like that, they had the knowledge of good and evil, and they educated themselves to the point where they thought that they could dictate the way the world worked without God. God punished them for it, and God is still punishing us for it today. And yet, we are still in that same pattern. As you read through your Old Testament, you find that uh, there was no king in in Israel in those days, right? And they just kept on returning to to that pattern, right? They kept on living as they wanted to. And that's what we do today. God may chasten us. God may chastise us. He may uh, show us where we're wrong. He may even take corrective action in our lives. And yet, we still have this propensity towards sin. And oftentimes, even the best of us, uh, of course, there's really no such thing as the best of us because we're all, uh, our righteousness is as filthy rags, really, in the sight of God. But um, if I can use that terminology, even the best of us have days where we simply rebel against God. And we want to do things our way. So, what does all this mean? Well, let's look at the historical understanding of God's image in Adam. Spend a little bit of time here, uh, and we want to kind of build this historical case. You know, what what has um, what have scholars believed in the past, and what do we believe today, really, about the image of God? Let's start looking at the Jewish rabbis. The Jewish rabbis. The rabbis understood the deliberate creation of Adam as the beginning of God's spiritual work in a material universe. So this is a pretty significant fact, all right, because the image by the rabbis was not seen as any kind of a physical representation, a physical representation. Now, so what I mean by that is that there are often times, and we'll deal with this a little bit here uh, in this lesson later, but uh, there are often times when uh, people get the idea that to be made in the image of God means to look like God. Of course, God was manifested as a uh, person, as a human being, in the person of Jesus Christ. And we realize that, and maybe in some sort of theological way, that is an ultimate culmination. But when we're talking about the image of God, uh, historically, the church has not understood that to mean a physical representation. Historically, uh, the church has understood that to be a spiritual representation of some of the attributes and of the character of God. Now, there are communicable attributes and there are incommunicable attributes of God. There are things that um, we share with God. There are things that we do not share with God. We do not share the ultimate goodness aspect of God. God is the ultimate good. He's the greatest possible being in the universe from a philosophical perspective. So we need to understand that we do not share things like that with God. Um, we uh, do have the ability to love. 
Now, God is a triune being. He has always existed as one being in three distinct persons. And this means that um, you could use the word history, even though God is outside of time, so that's really not a, an accurate word. Uh, but for understanding purposes, you could say that for all time, for all history, there has always been the ethic of love to live between the triune beings of God. That is so important to understanding the idea of love in general. None of the theistic, uh, other theistic uh, solutions, even even monotheistic uh, solutions, such as um, um, Islam, for example, uh, can explain the idea of love because there is no reason for love to exist between the Creator and the creature. Love is the ultimate ethic, and it has been present for all time, for all history, for before history. God, who was and is and is to come, has been in a self-relationship of love for his entire existence. It's, it's hard to even put this into, into words that accurately put how, uh, how significant this thought is. All right. So understand that that um, this idea of Adam being made in the image of God has to do with a spiritual work. All right. Um, Rabbi uh, Zlotowitz said this: God satisfied the motive of creation. He would be able to confer good upon man. Man could attain it only by elevating the spiritual in himself and by uniting it with the spiritual in creation. By uniting his intellect with that of God through the study of the Torah, and by perfecting his deeds through the performance of the commandments, man earns the degree of perfection that is possible for him to attain, and the degree of reward that God seeks to give. So you see this natural correlation here that Zlotowitz pointed out, and this has to do with uh, the spiritual uniting of God and man. All right, and of course, in the Jewish context, this is through the study of the Torah and by perfecting his deeds through the performance of the uh, commandments. That is where this understanding would come in from a from a rabbinical perspective. Um, Rabbi uh, Abernabel, I hope I'm getting that name right. Uh, he lived from 1437 to 1508 claimed that uh, the divine deliberation in Adam's creation was evidence that God did not associate humanity with the earth, but instead served as the deepest involvement of divine providence and wisdom. So, the rabbinic uh, spiritual emphasis on humanity's creation is directly linked to the fact that Adam was created in God's image. Um, Rabbi Abernable, um associated the word image, which is selim, with the word for shadow, seal, in order to demonstrate how man is related to his creator. He wrote that man must follow God's every way, quote, as a shadow which faithfully follows the movements of its illuminated form. What a beautiful way to characterize the image of God. A shadow that faithfully follows the movements of its illuminated form. Uh, Rabbi Mosh ben Maimon, uh, he was uh, living from 1135 through uh, 1204, elaborated further and included human volition. Now, I really love this. Man alone among the living creatures is endowed, like his creator, with moral freedom and will. 
He is capable of knowing and loving God and of holding spiritual communion with Him. And man alone can guide his actions in accordance with reason. He is therefore said to have been made in the form and likeness of the Almighty. We were made to be like God. That's what these rabbinical writers saw. We share these qualities, these attributes with God. We are not higher evolved animals. We were made for more than that. We were made more than that. We are more than that. So the author summarizes this section here and says that God's image was spiritually interpreted in the rabbinic mind, and thus they understood Adam and all humanity to be the unique creation of God. So historical rabbinic Judaism simply did not uh, take any kind of physical manifestation to be uh, what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. And this is significant because it means that the Hebrew words that are used here are probably best interpreted in light of the way that the rabbinical um, uh, elite, I guess you could say, would use them, or uh, really just even in regular Hebrew tongue. So they would understand that to be the spiritual uh, creation and not the physical. So I think that most certainly is important. Now, the early church fathers um, shared a similar view. Uh, the church fathers, the author writes, in line with rabbinic thinking, connected the image of God to Adam's spirituality. In fact, Burkhoff suggested the early church fathers were quite agreed that the image of God in man consisted primarily in man's rational and moral characteristics and in his capacity for holiness. Now notice, not in his holiness, but in his capacity for holiness. According to Greg Allison, the first Christians were deeply influenced by their Jewish roots, especially the Hebrew Bible's teaching about God's creation of human beings in his image uh, in Genesis 1, 26-31. Paul picked up the idea in addressing God's work and sanctification of the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator, uh, Colossians 3, 9 through 10, and you can also see Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. Thus, the early Christians affirmed both human dignity uh, because both uh, because people are created in the image of God and human depravity because the image of God in people is warped and perverted by God. Sin. So do you see how it is just a, a, a double-edged sword here? So we're made in the image of God, which means that we have dignity. It means that we are made a little lower than the angels. It means that we have a special place in the sight of God, right? But also human depravity, because as we've argued, Adam was a historical person. There was a real fall. So we must teach, as the New Testament does, this balance between dignity and depravity. We must understand that our dignity lies in the fact of what we could be, not necessarily what we are now, because of the fall. Does that make sense? We are going to be made and conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. But the ability that we have to be conformed to His image has to do with our dignity. Outside of that, man, while still made in the image of God, is depraved, marred, and warped by sin. Irenaeus weighed in, For I have shown that the Son of God did not then begin to exist, begin with the Father from the beginning. 
But when he became incarnate and was made man, he commenced afresh the long line of human beings and furnished us in a brief, comprehensive manner with salvation. So that what we had lost in Adam, namely, to be according to the image and likeness of God, that we might recover in Christ Jesus. So you see this position, it is it is all spiritual, it is not physical. And this is the fact that we can see that Christ is the one who is responsible for restoring us to that image and to that likeness of God. We can only be, you know, we hear people talk about this all the time. I mean, just if I can get practical for a minute, because I love to read, I love to um, read books about improving myself, uh, even if you want to call that self-help, whatever, uh, I try to always find things from a biblical perspective. And I find it interesting how many there are who write in that tone from some kind of spiritual or biblical perspective. That's because people realize that you cannot get there on an evolutionary worldview. This purpose, this greater... Um, greater and higher way of living, this uh, thing that you are reaching out to attain, that you're going to become a better version or even the best version of yourself. Do you realize today that that is 100% impossible without a relationship with Jesus Christ? You can't get there. You can't get there. We're made in the image of God, but there's no way we can restore back to that dignity without submitting to Christ Jesus, because the only way to be conformed to what God intended for the image and likeness of his self is to be conformed to the image of his son. And the only way to do that is to bow a knee before him, to tell God that you're sorry for all the sins you've committed, and to become bankrupt, and to understand that without God you have no hope, and that you're heading for a place called hell. And God will have mercy on you. God will show you that mercy. And then you can be conformed to the image of his son. One day, we're not there yet. We're working on it. We're getting there. All right. But God is going to radically change you. And he's radically changed me. And he's radically changed my family and so many others around me. And that's what God can do. If you want to get to a higher purpose, if you want to understand why you were made, if you want to get to what meaning your life has, you're only going to find it in one person. Your identity is found in Jesus Christ. And that's what the early church fathers realized. Now, what about Augustine? Of course, Augustine of Hippo, he lived from 354 to 430. He said uh, he significantly advanced the understanding of image-bearing by insisting that the immortal image of God can be found in the immortal aspect of a person, which is his soul, and in particular, the relational part of his soul. He said this, If, then, we are renewed in the spirit of our mind, he is the new man who is renewed to the knowledge of God after the image of God that created him. No one can doubt that man was made after the image of him that created him, not according to the body, nor indiscriminately according to any part of the mind, but according to the rational mind, wherein the knowledge of God can exist. The author points out that Augustine reasoned that only the immortal aspect of Adam can relate to God's immortality in his rational mind, saying this, We must find in the soul of man, i.e., the rational or intellectual soul, that image of the Creator, which is immortally implanted in its immortality. Augustine 
uh, of course here, believed that the original image would be restored fully through salvation, as we have uh, spent a few minutes arguing a moment ago. Quote, for it is the spirit of grace that does it in order to restore us in us the image of God, excuse me, in order to restore in us the image of God in which we were naturally created. All right, now what about the reformers? What about the reformers? Now, they really did not do much to either advance or refute the traditional Christian position uh, concerning the image of God and um, especially Adam's spiritual aspect. Um, Luther, for example, maintained that uh, Adam's nature before the fall, uh, quote, remained perfect and uncorrupted by sin. So the image of God was far different from any physical attribute. Uh, Adam was created for a life that was far more excellent than the earthly. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Uh, Although he believed that his image was marred and obscured by the fall, as we have seen, that would be the historical understanding of it, um, he did say this. Now, the very intent of the gospel is to restore this image of God. Sound familiar? Man's intellect and will have indeed remained, but are wholly corrupted. The divine object of the gospel is that we might be restored to the original and indeed better and higher image. So you see this theme. And if you've never begun to to think in these terms, these terms about how perfect the beginning was, remember that we're dealing with the story of reality here. And part of the story arc is that we long for redemption, right? If you see these movies and, and, and we see it in pop culture all over the place, everybody longs for redemption. And that is because it has been baked into our spiritual DNA. We long for redemption because we're trying to get back to what it was like when we were perfect. We're long for that original perfection, that very good creation of God in humanity. And that is what we are trying to get to. Now, John Calvin insisted that the image of God uh, was in Adam's soul. Quote, for though the divine glory is displayed in man's outward appearance, it cannot be doubted that the proper seat of the image is in the soul. Consistent with Luther and seemingly relying on Augustine, Calvin concluded that the image was corrupted by sin. He defined the original image as Adam's ability to be, quote, united with God in the true and highest perfection of dignity which would be possible for Adam if he were not like to him. The image of God was not completely lost at the fall, but it was severely damaged to the point of utter deformity. So there's no um, ambiguity here in, in, of course, the reformer's position. Um, It resulted in a reaffirmation, really, uh, that God's image and likeness is to be uh, connected to Adam's unique spirituality. So what about in more recent times? Um, you know, has this teaching gone astray? Where have we lost it? Um, since 1880, there has been a paradigmatic shift in Old Testament understanding. And, of course, the author argues that this is primarily due to three reasons. Uh, first of all, Darwin's theory claimed there was no fundamental differences between humanity and higher animals. Now, we can all see how this is A problem. When Darwin proposed that we were all related to a single common ancestor, this completely wiped out the idea that we were made in the image of God. Secular scientists finally had a way out. 
they had an explanation they could use. And we've just been building on that explanation ever since. And of course, in today's understanding, we do understand that we see natural selection working. And we get that, and even creationists are on board with that idea. But not to the extent that it goes past what we can observe. Darwinian evolution, in the macroevolution sense, is just not true. Now, did I say there was not good evidence for it? No. There is good evidence for it. And don't let me lose you right there. There's good evidence for the theory of evolution. But it's not observable. There's good historical evidence. If you look at the fossil record, you can see how somebody who is not a regenerated Christian, if they're looking for an explanation of the history of the world, you can see how they can arrange things and they can make it work for them. If you want to call that evidence, that's fine. Um, you know, that's just the position I take on it. But I think there's an alternative theory. I think the theory of creation much better explains that evidence. I think common features, while they could be certainly attributed to common ancestry in some ways, really, they could also be explained by a common designer. And we're going to argue in later chapters of this book, we're going to argue that there are some features that are way better explained by a common designer and are actually quite a difficulty for the view of common ancestry, especially, of course, as it relates to Homo sapiens. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. That is going to be in a few weeks. We're going to start looking at that. But so that was one um, real shift in Old Testament understanding uh, as Darwin's theory began to pick up steam and begin to gain credibility. Uh, biblical scholars said, look, we got to start looking at this thing differently because modern science has started to challenge the Bible. So uh, that is definitely one reason. All right. The second reason is that A&E documents, which we dealt with uh, extensively last uh, in the last lesson, which is ancient Near Eastern documents, uh, caused many scholars to suppose the Bible's dependence on such sources. And I'm not going to comment too much on that because we dealt with that in depth last week, talking about John and Walton's views. So um, I invite you to go back to episode number 22 and listen to that one. All right. And then thirdly, contributions from influential Old Testament scholars replace salvation history with a history of religions approach. So uh, essentially what they're doing is they're looking at the history of religions through the world and trying to gain an understanding of the biblical story through that lens rather than God's plan of salvation. You can see how all three of these things are going to drastically affect one's understanding of the image of God. Herman Gunkel, uh, who lived from 1862 to 1932, made the first major departure from the historic consensus of God's image as the spiritual aspect of Adam. He determined that the uh, simpler narrative of the first chapters of Genesis were myth derived from the simpler pagan roots of oral tradition. He insists that the simpler the narrative, the more pure. Quote, the more independent a story is, the more sure we may be that it is preserved in its original form, unquote. This forms the basis of Gunkel's religious, uh, religio-historical uh, approach, not to mention his rejection of the historicity of Adam and Eve. You see the slippery slope we get on. We're not made in the image of God. Suddenly there's no Adam, there's no Eve. We simply evolved from a population of um, um, lesser individuals, and there's nothing really special about us at all. 
Gunkel regarded God's uh, image as an external attribute and relied on Genesis 5-3 as a key text for a physical explanation. Remember I mentioned earlier that we would start to get into seeing um, Adam's image as a physical representation. All right, that is how some modern scholars would view it. Gunkel's influence would not be immediate. Um, however, his reliance on the A&E texts and his argument for the physical resemblance would form the foundation for modern understanding of Adam and image bearing. So you see this guy's contribution, while not immediately accepted, was most certainly very influential and is still influential today. Relying on the philosophical ideas of his day, Karl Barth argued that the only thing that we know apart from God creating Adam in his image, is that he created them male and female. Therefore, there exists an I-thou relationship between God and Adam. And there is, uh, as there is, between male and female. So you see, it's this relational aspect. It's physical in that it's relational. Now, Barb's contribution to the discussion places image-bearing outside the realm of any particular human quality, and thus eventually became the consensus view among modern liberal and neo-Orthodox theologians and Old Testament scholars who would prefer to distance themselves from ontological explanations for the image of God. Now that sounded like a confusing statement, so here's all that means. That means that using this view they can simply attribute this uh, image-bearing motif to the idea of relationships and specifically to be seen as manifested in physical relationships. This means we can distance ourselves, right, from understanding that we share this common thread with the, with God, with uh, and the image of God and his actual spiritual attributes, all right? So, that is essentially all that's saying. Now, uh, Gerard von Rad uh, from 1901 to 1971, in particular, unequivocally relied on Mesopotamian meanings to understand Genesis 1:26 and interpreted the image of God as his physical viceroy on earth. So there's an even more modified view. And the author summarizes uh, concerning these recent developments with this. The Darwinian influence... Upon the 20th century, scholars coupled with greater reliance on A&E discoveries eventually marginalized the historical interpretation of Adam in the image of God for a more physical or functional approach. So hopefully you can see that this uh, history is just replete with these examples um, where we have just got this historical understanding of the image of God that we got directly from the Bible and all the way through the rabbinic tradition. And then here recently, thanks to the influence of Darwin and the ancient Near East sources, we are now seeing Adam in a completely different way. And we have to ask, is this the way God wanted it? Did God purposely deceive us for a certain amount of time till we just now have the proper understanding of what it means to be made in his image? It's not consistent with the God of the Bible. I can assure you that. Let's look at this. Ancient Near East texts, the Bible, in the image of God. All right? Um, reflecting on the departure from historical Old Testament thought, current surmises, the reality is that modern scholarship commonly views biblical history as invention and propaganda. In other words, it was written by post-exilic authors who had limited access to true historical resources. And obviously, a, major belie a majority believe that the antediluvian accounts of Genesis 1-11 through are mere myth and legend. 
just like similar stories throughout the ancient Near East. So this is obviously um, very problematic for us because we see in the New Testament that Jesus and the New Testament authors most certainly affirmed the historical reality of the Old Testament. So you see where the problem lies. When creationists, and recent creationists especially, uh, make the case for a literal Genesis or for a for a naturally read Genesis and a historical uh, um, understanding of Genesis. It's not just because um, simply that we trust God's word and because we believe God's word is the true history of the world. That is the case. But it's also because the one who we've placed our trust for salvation in, Jesus Christ himself, who claimed to be God, commented on these things. This was not abstract. This was not secondary for God. God and Jesus Christ truly believed that the earth was created in a matter of just six days. Jesus taught that they were made male and female from the beginning. All right? From the beginning of creation. So you see, this has um, extreme implications. Of course, we talked about um, it exhaustively, the fact that uh, Paul believed that Adam brought death and sin into the world. He's responsible. And so, uh, when we start to dismiss this historical reality, we lose the theological understanding as well. Now, Curry recognizes those aspects of Semitic writings that are similar due to the cultural vicinity. Nevertheless, he, quote, emphatically and graphically demonstrates the distinctions between the worldview of the Hebrews and the beliefs and practices of the rest of the ancient Near East. Um, so a few things here. First, he argues that while emphasizing the parallels, scholars ignore the foundational differences. And when it comes to the Genesis text, he strongly stresses the differences in the biblical and A&E cosmogonies as a premise to avoid pushing any similarity too far. So we talked about this uh, before, but but we see it. Um, we are always told to look at the similarities between things, even as it goes back to the evolutionary thinking um, and our scientific understanding of common ancestry and such. We're told to look at the similarities, but we don't really give any credence to the differences. And the differences are what make it. The differences are what help us to understand how we are different. Isn't that something? Uh, it's, 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 it's necessary. We must not just reflect on how similar we are with something else or with another um, uh, animal group or, or with other uh, beings. We must also assess how different we are and note our individuality in light of those things. Now, quoting Wilfred Lambert, Curran states that parallels to Genesis have been found among the Canaanites, Egyptians, Hurrians, Hittites, and early Greeks, in addition to Mesopotamia, and therefore, quote, the question of dependence, if any, has to be approached with an open mind, unquote. So um, the idea here is which one of these ancient understandings have we supposedly copied, right? Because there are um, similarities in Genesis to all of those, right? So, uh, is one of them true literal history that they have all kind of copied? Um, 
are we the one that has copied some of the others? Well, no. Uh, we realize this because the others are are blatantly mythical. Blatantly mythical. So notice this difference. As Kurt observes, all of the ancient Near Eastern societies, Israel alone is monotheistic, of all of them. In fact, unlike any sources, the biblical account has no interest in theogony or the birth of the gods. Ancient sources ascribed powers of nature to their deities, and as a result, their gods were restricted to natural elements. Now, if you can't see a difference between this and the God of the Bible, then you have not studied your Bible. It's huge. It's huge. Uh, Curran also argues that uh, the God of the Genesis account is radically monotheistic, and contrary to all ancient Near Eastern sources, the God of the Hebrews is presented as transcendent, that is, set apart from the cosmos. In other words, while the pantheon struggles with one another, or, you know, the gods struggle with one another, magic is presented as the ultimate power in the universe, and creation is a consequence of a power struggle among the gods. Genesis, however, presents God as all-powerful, incomparable, and sovereign. He is God alone and fashions the universe, quote, ex nihilo, by means of verbal fiat. That means out of nothing. And he spoke it into existence. The mythical nature of other ancient Near Eastern cosmogonies stands in sharp contrast to the historical nature of the Genesis account. The writing style of any sources is that of legendary stories, or what Curran calls mythic narratives. And Curran here further provides the key point. The differences are monumental and are so striking that they cannot be explained by a simple Hebrew cleansing of myth. Genesis 1 is unique and stands in stark contrast to the darkness of mythical legends and polytheism. Hmm. Now, as we mentioned earlier, there is a specific contention uh, that lies in the uh, between the words image and likeness. And the author spends quite a bit of time on this, and I'm just going to summarize it here for you um, and give you three simple things. So, um, Gentry concludes that man is not made in the image of God, but made as the image of God. Therefore, quote, man is a divine image, both physical and yet goes far beyond being merely physical. Other scholars hold to the position that, uh, grammatically, Selim and Demut are only different ways of saying the same thing. Burkhoff, in particular, points out that the prepositions reverse in Genesis 5.3. Thus, he disregards the argument that the phrases are different. Garrett claims that the synonymous view is held by a great majority of present-day Hebrew and Old Testament scholars, and phrases are simply an instance of synonymous Hebrew parallelism. In other words, saying that the words image and likeness just simply mean the same thing. Because the image cannot be confined to dominion or relation, and because Adam and Eve were made in the image of God before they were given instructions to rule and to procreate, the image reflects a work that God did when he formed Adam and Eve with a spiritual aspect that reflected their creator. Now what about the nature of the image of God in Adam? So the image of God in Adam and Eve has an ontological meaning, even when God's eminence is juxtaposed against man's finiteness. That means there is that spiritual relationship. There is a relationship of being, a state of being that is shared by God and humanity. Human nature is not holistically irreducible. Rather, it is dualistic in nature 
and capable of fellowship with God. What, what an amazing statement. We were made to have the capacity to fellowship directly with God. Cooper explains, to sum this idea up, that holism means humans are created and redeemed by God as an integral, as an integral uh, personal, spiritual, physical wholes. Single beings consisting of different parts, aspects, dimensions, and abilities that are not naturally independent or separable. Dualism means that our core personalities, whether we label them souls, spirits, persons, selves, or even egos, are distinct, and by God's supernatural providence can exist apart from our physical bodies after death. Now, three observations support this view. First, creation has both a natural and a spiritual dimension, and and God, though incorporeal, is innately involved in it, right? So, I've heard it asked before, you know, why is it so reasonable to assume that a spiritual force can act on the natural world? And, I mean, have you ever just thought about the absurdity of that statement? Of course a spiritual force can act on the natural world. You would just have to explain how um, how love and, and feelings and emotions and everything affected how we physically act. All right? It's the same exact thing. All right. Secondly, Genesis 2-7 recounts Adam's formation from material and immaterial substances to constitute an irreducible living being. So he is uh, a human being is not simply the sum of his parts. He is his parts, right? I mean, he is irreducible. He must have certain attributes and certain things about him to be considered a living being being. And Genesis 2-7 recounts that for us. And thirdly, and finally, the Old Testament affirms an eternal existence of the soul that continues to survive in a disembodied state after physical death. So, uh, therefore, we see that we are dualistic in nature. We have a physical aspect, and we also have a spiritual aspect. So, in sum, God created Adam as a holistic, single-person bodily being for earthly existence, and at death, sustains him as a whole person without a body, but still possessing consciousness, bodily shape, and location. Therefore, Adam's constitution is irreducible by natural observation, but in reality, he's a dual being, composed of both body and soul, of which the latter relates to God, who is a spirit. All right, now concerning personhood here, Cooper explains that each human remains the very same being throughout his or her existence, even though we constantly change from the moment we are conceived, and even though our awareness of self-identity may change or be lost. Individual identity is metaphysical and logical, not just a matter of fact or of self-consciousness. And this is so important, the idea of personhood, if you've never really researched and, and looked into this. Um... This is a really, really great argument against the idea of evolution, because if we're evolving, right, if, if, if Darwinian evolution is true in the sense that we change so drastically, then when we undergo all of these changes throughout our lives, what is it? What is it, what is it about us? What is that quality about us that makes us ourselves? Who are we? Remember, that's what we're asking. Who was Adam and who are we? We are not just simply physical composition. For if we were, by the time we died, we would be a completely different person. Now, of course, we change. I understand that. We're not going to be the same person um, 
even from a spiritual standpoint and from a physical standpoint, um, things change, but we're still the same person. Do you understand what I'm saying? We've not become a different uh, person. For someone to uh, label themselves as a different person than they actually are doesn't solve the problem either. We see that going on a lot today, but that does not solve the problem. They are still the same person. A man may choose to identify as a woman if he like, but he's still a man. He is still the same person. That is a fundamental element about him that has not changed and that it cannot change. So personhood is important to understanding the image of God and the nature of the image of God. To fellowship with God, the image of God, in Adam and Eve must reflect God's holy character, especially in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness of the truth. In Colossians 3.10, Paul speaks of God's image, quote, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him who created him. In regeneration, God is renewing his image within us in the knowledge of God. Such knowledge of God is eternal life, the spiritual life of the soul. Now, what about the implications? The implications of the image of God. Because of God's image, right, Adam and his descendants resemble and reflect God. So we resemble and reflect God. Now, this has uh, profound implications for Christian belief and practice. And when we lose these tenets, when we lose this fundamental understanding of what it means to be a human, of what it means to be created in the image of God, then the rest of our belief and practice is detrimentally affected. So here are three ways. First, the image of God establishes human dignity, right? We saw that in Psalm 8, 5. We're made a little lower than the angels. Without this image, there is no human dignity. And you can read about that in the show notes in that article I'm going to post, all right? Um, there is no human dignity apart from the image of God. Anytime, whether it be a religionist, secularist, Christian, a Buddhist, it doesn't matter who it is. If you're arguing for the uniqueness of humanity, if you're arguing for human dignity, you are arguing from a Christian perspective. All right, second, the image of God establishes the sanctity of life. If you're interested in preserving life, if you're interested in living, if you are interested in all lives meaning something, if you're interested in the Black Lives Matter movement, if you're interested in uh, understanding how abortion dramatically and drastically affects the life of a person who has... uh, not only had that happen to them, but also the life that you're affecting when you allow someone to take it. The image of God establishes sanctity of life. In Genesis 9, 5, and 6, God decrees that if anyone commits murder, the murderer must forfeit his life because people are made in the image of God. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, right? That's a biblical idea. Third, And finally, the image of God establishes the need for God's redemption. God's purpose for sending his son in the likeness of Adam was to renew God's image in humankind through the gospel. And you could see that in Ephesians 4.24 and Colossians 3.10. Indeed, Christians have been foreknown, predestined, to conform to the image of his son. Romans 8.29. The gospel 
once believed, renews the image that was marred by both Adam's sin and our own sin, so that the believer, the believer may bear the image of the heavenly. First Corinthians fifteen forty nine. Well, in conclusion to this week, I'm just going to read you the author's conclusion. It's not very long, but it's succinct and gets right here to the point. And the author says this in concluding his chapter. Adam and his descendants bear the image of their creator and as a result relate to God and one another, create magnificent things and establish or and accomplish, excuse me, uh, amazing feats. As image bearers, we all have value, no matter our abilities or status in this life. As image bearers, each one of our lives is sacred. As image bearers marred by the fall, we each need a savior. And as image bearers, we are called by the redeeming love of our Creator to be renewed and conformed into the image of Him who is the perfect, beautiful image of God. And what a true statement. And what a true chapter uh, this has been. We find that in our lives, everything that we hold dear to us, everything that we know to be true about ourselves, when we talk about dignity, when we talk about human flourishing, when we talk about the sanctity of life, when we talk about understanding how different we are from the animals, it all comes down to the image of God. And ultimately, as Dr. John Lennox has uh, so rightly observed, the ultimate reason that humanity is valuable, God became one, right? God became a human in the person of Jesus Christ. Manifested himself, proved he was who he said he was when he claimed to be God. What an amazing story. The Christian story is just incredible. Incredible. And its explanatory power is unbelievable in terms of the way it mirrors reality, the way it shows us and and really um, establishes reality, the way the world actually is. I love it. I love it. It's good stuff. It's good to be a Christian, and it's good to know that I'm made in the image of the almighty, all-powerful, beautiful God of eternity and God of all glory. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you, and we're so thankful to know, Lord, that you've made us in your image, to know that you've made us after yourself, to know that we have attributes, Lord, that come and flow directly from you. What an amazing truth it is, Father, to know that we're different, that we were made a little lower than the angels, Lord, that we have a dominion over um, over the animals. We're not the same. We're not just simply a, a higher evolved uh, version of some common ancestor between us and, and apes. Lord, thank you for seeing us as special individuals and for making us in your image and for giving us the opportunity to be conformed to the image of your very son. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for sending your son to die on a cross at Calvary so that we can be restored back to that perfect image that you had created in the very beginning. Now, Lord, in this day of wavering, Lord, in this day of liberal theology, Lord, in this day of uh, taking your word and and running it through all kinds of uh, faulty historical filters as far as uh, ancient Near Eastern literature and things of this nature, Lord, I pray that in this day, you would help us to return to that beautiful and historical 
and may I even say biblical understanding of the image of God. Thank you for the opportunity, as always, Lord, to study your word and to study your world. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask this prayer. Amen. Well, thank you for joining me this week on the Creation Academy. It's been a good week. Um, Next week, we're going to do something a little different. I'm going to take a break, kind of tell you about uh, some things that happened last year, some things that are going to happen this year. Um, Got a really, really exciting announcement uh, that I'm going to be making. I'm a little nervous about making it, but uh, I'm going to make it anyway. And... um, kind of uh, let you know my intent to uh, do something for the future. So uh, I'm really excited about it, and I hope you'll join me next week right here on the Creation Academy. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.